Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Robbie Swale. Robbie, you're so welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Yeah, it's lovely to be here and have this conversation. I can kind of feel a really nice warm energy about this conversation. So really looking forward to it. Well, it's not warm. It's freezing. It actually is. My toes are cold, but my energy is warm. (laughs) Yeah, brilliant. And let's start with a number. What podcast recording number is this do you have any idea <laughs> oh it's part of my challenge yeah i do it's 105 Woo! yeah so yeah for people who have no idea what that is last year the story is long to do with releasing my books and thinking about what is success for them i set myself for me an outrageous challenge to appear on 100 podcasts in 2022 and i got to 101 in 2022 which is fantastic then of course setting yourself a challenge in that kind of way it plants all kinds of seeds some of which will sprout into 2023 and potentially beyond and so yeah this is like the third or fourth podcast i've recorded in january 23 attract all the ones in 2022 and i'm going to track all the other ones that come from that because i'm interested in okay a year's energy in some ways into this how much does that lead to even if i don't speech marks try and appear on any more podcasts what other shoots come up and this is one of those yeah cool and we were introduced by Travis Scott so Travis if you're listening hello and thank you and Travis is actually over in Washington state isn't it yeah somewhere way over there he briefly tantalized me with saying that his company had been bought by a British company so he might be over and we could like have a beer or something without me having to fly halfway around the world but I think that changed so that's a night to happen but yeah Travis what a great great guy and has two podcasts which I managed to persuade him to have me on as part of my challenge they're both really worth checking out not just they are with me of course well the 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 winding road one I'm a big fan of and and I've had Travis on as well and I'll put a link to the episode with Travis in the show notes so to do a hundred podcasts even to consider doing a hundred podcast episodes and you use the word outrageous which I think is a fantastic word and most people are going probably crazy as well at this point but when you set yourself an outrageous challenge is it then easy to go and do it 
No, no, that's partly why it's worth doing. No, it triggered for me all the things that stop me doing things always. And I should say it's not the first one I've done since I started my business. Part of the reason I set it, it's the first one I've done and managed entirely by myself. Usually it's been managed with the help of a coach or something like that. But I also know that if I get the balance, and I think this is probably true for everybody, but the numbers will be different, the feelings will be different. If you set yourself a challenge like that and you get the balance right of it's just outrageous enough, but not too outrageous, and you take it just seriously enough, but not too seriously, and you can find the way to keep going with it, then for me, it does amazing things. It engages some of the struggles, for example, that I normally have. So some of them it brings up, but some of them it gets rid of or makes me work through and around. It's just a great way to get out of my own way. If, for example, my friend Mike says, um, uh, Deutsche Bank have asked me to give a talk. They won't let me do breakouts. So I'm not going to do it because I only run workshops. I don't really give talks. But I know that you might want to give a talk. Do you want to do it? And I think, do I have anything to say to Deutsche Bank? No, this is terrifying. I came from, from charity sector in the arts and I haven't worn a suit for, you know, outside of a wedding in my life or a funeral, but I'm in a challenge. So instead of all that doubt, which is of course false, like, do I have something to say to Deutsche Bank? Yes, absolutely. I say yes. It also makes me ask for help. Things like me saying to Travis, can you introduce me to Susan? Because I really like the sound of her show and getting all kinds of help from people. And it gets me creative and entrepreneurial. And so, for example, when I was really struggling with the numbers partway through the year, I was like, well, what can I do to take this back in my control? I know I could launch a second podcast of my own, which is focused to fulfill the challenge, but is within my control. And so there's now the 12 Minute Method podcast with 14 episodes, which wouldn't exist without setting myself this kind of thing, which gets me going. So as you're speaking, I keep thinking necessity is the mother of invention. Is it the commitment? Is that what drives you forward? What is the overarching feeling or incentive, I suppose, to keep going? So I've worked quite hard in the last few years. I'm playing with something different this year to get as good as I can at doing what I call choice management. So people get obsessed with time management, right? But mostly, in my view, when people are obsessed with time management, what they really need is choice management. Basically, what that means is you can't do everything. No one can do everything. It's really important. It's really hard to admit, but really important to admit. So therefore, you're always going to be making some choices. And most of looking productive, in my view, when people say I'm productive, and even I can't deny that I'm productive now, right? Last year, I published three books and appeared on 100 podcasts, launched a second podcast of my own. All that okay, kind of okay. Right? Like, I, but no, but I have to... Like when I'm giving a talk, I, you know, I said this last year in one of my, I gave a talk partly because of the challenge on how to be more productive. And we gave it that title because something like that is a great way to get people in. But I had to deal with my own imposter syndrome worries with that. One of the ways I deal with my imposter syndrome worries is I answer the question, who am I to give a talk on how to be more productive? Someone who's appeared in a hundred podcasts, published four books about it, all that kind of thing. I think one of the surprising things about how I've done that, the reason I don't feel like I'm productive sometimes is that I'm not productive in the way that I thought people were productive. I do work hard, but I'm not necessarily productive by manically working 24 seven to get things done. One of the ways I'm productive is I choose very carefully what I say yes to and very carefully what I say no to. And so I had, you know, I'm not going to do it this year because I'm doing some personal development to be a bit different. But for the last few years, I've done a very careful goal setting exercise for the year. And I've learned a lot from that about how you get things done and what gets in the way of it for me, which involves choosing. It's a Warren Buffett story, which I, I won't go into. We can link to about you choose the five most important things 
and then you only focus on them. If you Google James Clear, Warren Buffett, you'll find a, a great little blog about it. Key thing of that story is that the, the next most important, interesting things are the most dangerous things to getting the most important things done. That's say that amazing. again. So let's say you've got the five most important things and you also yeah. know the next 10 most important things. Yeah. Those are the most likely things to derail you from the most important things. Because things that aren't at all important, you're probably pretty good at saying no to. But like number seven, the seventh most important thing that you could be working on this year, that's tantalizing. So one of the things that keeps me going is that, and it's quite hard work, is that commitment to not doing numbers six to 20, let's say, on the list. But it's also it becomes a game. You were just talking about the, the, before we switched on, about the creatives workshop, the Akimbo workshop, right? Creating a streak of, of writing. Like, you know, I'm a huge Duolingo fan. It's amazingly, they, what they've done there to gamify learning is incredible. And there's a game element of it. Isn't it funny that I completed that goal on the 21st of December, my last working day of the year? was when I got to Podcast 100 and Podcast 101, right? And there's a guy called Doug Hofstadter who's written some really hard to read, but really great books because they're hard to read because they've got a lot of maths in them. And he coined a thing which he calls Hofstadter's Law, which is that the, the task will always expand to fill the time available, even when you take into account Hofstadter's Law. So it's like, you can't avoid it. It'll always take exactly how much time you have. But yeah, I think that to answer your question in a really long way, and then to actually give you the short answer, like really practicing doing something like that required me to really practice yes and it required it to be just achievable like the right level of stretch but not too achievable and to be honest this one required it to probably not be the first thing like this that i'd done to get things done one of the things i've noticed especially hard things you have to hold the separation from the outcome and the process really carefully otherwise i certainly get derailed and overwhelmed and then the last thing to say is i got super derailed and overwhelmed in about february last year and i was like how the hell am i going to do this 100 this is totally ridiculous what am i doing and then i luckily remembered that i've already published one book about literally how to deal with overwhelm and get things done and so i really slowed down and maybe we'll talk about that or not but essentially i used the 12 minute method which people can look up to think about how to achieve it and what i've learned from that from writing my books in that way the way that i've written them is you know, set aside a small amount of time every week and you'll be surprised how much you can achieve. So I put in 30 minutes a week and essentially I managed to stick pretty much to that over the course of the year. And until I realized I needed to accelerate in the autumn, that was pretty much how I managed it. And the great thing about that was whenever things got really busy elsewhere, that the work on the podcast challenge didn't stop. It just got reduced to 30 minutes and that was enough. There's so much in there. It's doing something rather than nothing is the yeah. first thing that I would say yeah, out yeah. of that. It's like Absolutely. take some little action. And even if you forget one day, then pick it up the next day because the consistency builds, the habit builds, the momentum and so on. And what I find often is if we set ourselves a challenge and it's 30 days of something and after day nine, you forget a day because we do, because our lives are full of stuff. And then we get to day 10 and we go, ah, I didn't do yesterday. So I'll pick it up tomorrow. And then tomorrow never comes, <laughs> yeah. you know, so what's the simplest way of overcoming that tendency to opt out, even though we don't want to. Yeah. 
So I think there's two things to say about that. I think you've done one of them for people. You've named it, right? It's really important to just name it. It's going to happen almost yeah. certainly. Yeah. Like I had this thought that if you want to build, like what do we call it? Like the, the, the commitment muscle or the ability to keep your promises to yourself muscle, whatever it is, if you're going to build that, the key moment, the rep, the thing that will decide if you're building it, the thing that builds it, in fact, is what happens on those moments. I had this insight because the podcaster Tim Ferriss talked about what had finally enabled him to meditate was realizing the key moment in meditation is when your attention has gone from the thing you're focusing on it, bringing it back. So he's really into exercise. It's like realizing that the rep, the, the lifting of the weight is bringing your attention back to the mantra or back to the breath or whatever it is. And in commitment, the rep is recommitting after you've slipped. And acknowledging that you will almost certainly slip, especially if you're doing something ambitious, like trying to do something every day. So the second part of it is, I referenced it slightly, so I'll tell the story really quickly. Essentially, my books were written by writing a, an article, which became a chapter every week in one sitting. I've been writing a blog post, sitting down for 12 minutes, writing, proofreading once, posting every week since August 2016. Occasionally, when I tell people about that, which is the 12-minute method now that it's branded, people confuse it. They think I'm saying 12 minutes a day. And it is really, really important to say that I am not saying that. If it had been 12 minutes a day, it is not a habit that would have survived the last six and a half years. One of the books is about keeping going when you want to give up. And really important is that there are really difficult times in our lives. This is a great example of why it will happen that there are days if you've got a daily practice that you don't do the thing because at some point someone will get ill or you will get ill or someone will die or someone will lose their job these things happen in our lives and you may on that day not do the thing you may just also forget like that's a very human thing as well so the reason it's very important that it was weekly is in a week i have found that it is much much less likely that i can't find 12 minutes so the only important thing then is do i remember to do it every week because I can find the time. And after you've practiced doing it for a while, what I found was it becomes weirder to not write the blog now than it was to write the blog. And that's an amazing change. I have the same thing with exercise. It's on a work day, it's a bit weirder now for me to not do exercise in the morning than it is like I get a funny feeling. <laughs> and I think that when building a habit, like that moment is a, realizing that is a lovely moment. Yeah, I had one of those yesterday, I think, with yeah. exercise. And even though I do a lot of exercise, I've been a bit more targeted in my habit setting for the last couple of months. I'm going to be 50 this year. And in November, I said, right, and I want to take on a few things that make me healthier and fitter and whatever. And I'm going to break the year into 13, four weeks. And each of those four weeks, I'm going to add a new habit. Mm. So I have four weeks of bring it in and keep it and whatever. And I've noticed now that the exercise one is like making me almost double what I set out to do. Right. Yeah. It, it's so ingrained now that I even feel like when I've done it, that I could do more today. Now, whether that will be every day or not, but I think it's also when it strikes, go with the feeling. And yeah. I think there's something like it's inspired action, isn't it? If your body is telling you, you can do 12 minutes writing now, or you can go out for another walk, or you can lift heavier weights, whatever it is, do it. Yeah.
I think that there's a really interesting idea. I first thought about it because of a brilliant Seth Godin blog, probably my favorite all-time Seth Godin blog. If people Google the Bannister method, Seth Godin, they'll find it. So the idea, I don't know how true this is, I just trust Seth. But when Roger Bannister, who was the first, people don't know, was the first person to run a mile in under four minutes. And when he died, Seth wrote this blog, which said that the, the way that Bannister did that was really interesting. He didn't try and run a mile as fast as possible. He was trying to run a mile in exactly just under four minutes. And all his training was geared towards that. And the thing that Seth did was say, the interesting thing about this is we obsess about as much as possible all the time. What if instead we did the banister method, which would be to obsess about exactly enough, just enough. And one of the really powerful things about that, well, there's two really powerful things about that. The first one is, example, writing for 12 minutes, I would say is not really enough to write about anything substantial. But having practiced for the last six and a half years, it actually is most of the time, more than enough time for me to write about any one idea, sometimes several. So if you obsess about enough, sometimes you get everything you need from a lot less doing or time than you would have thought you needed. And then the second key thing is the thing that you pointed to really nicely, which is that if you do just enough, often there'll either be knock-on effects in other parts of your life that you wouldn't have expected, or you'll just find yourself doing more because usually the things that we want to do but aren't doing, the wanting to do is a kind of truer to a deeper part of ourselves than the not doing part. And that means that when we do it, we receive all the nourishment that that deeper part of us knows we need, whether that's exercise or eating differently, really looking after ourselves or creating something or starting something that we thought about starting for a long time. All those things, they're good for us. And so we feel the goodness of them. It tends to lead to more. Yeah. And keep it simple. I think that's yeah. something else, isn't it? We have a tendency that we need to go out and buy special clothes or, you know, those set up with starting a podcast. You know, I spoke to somebody yesterday who's like been starting a podcast and it was all about the technology and I'm not going to get this right. And I'm like, what do you need? Nothing. Just do it. And you'll get better. And no one's going to listen for the first 10 episodes anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely. Like I used to procrastinate a lot on things. I used to not do things a lot. And one of the absolute, I mean, couple the two key things we could talk about. One was reading The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And then the other was using the, was basically starting to assume that I was overthinking everything and getting interested in the 80-20 the idea. So that 20% of the effort gives you 80% of the reward. So like, I probably do need to think a bit about tech for my podcast, but probably after I've done the first 20% of what I think I need to think about, I've done more than enough. So it's like, do you need to have a device that can run Zoom? Yes. If you know Zoom, do you need to learn Riverside Studio or any of those other platforms? No. Is it useful in the long term? Do they provide slightly better stuff? Probably. But like better to have a podcast recorded on Zoom, of which you've got 15 episodes by the time you learn Riverside, than never start because Riverside is a new thing and you can find excuses to not learn it. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And there are so many different ways of looking at that. It can be imposter syndrome. It can be procrastination. It can be perfectionism. I mean, there's just so many different labels that we overachievement, whatever. But let's go back to resistance, because I'd like to talk a little bit about that and procrastination, because first of all, are they the same? Well, it, I mean, yes, I, I think that if we if I think about Stephen Pressfield, I think one of the things that he does in, in The War of Art and his other books along that theme 
which there are many, and they kind of all say the same thing in beautifully different ways. And they're so punchy and easy to read. It doesn't matter which one you read. And you'll read them all because they're easy to read. What he does really nicely is he says, all those things that you just named with all those different labels, they all come from the same place. He calls it resistance. I think it's called the war of art winning your creative battles or something. He writes historical fiction about the like ancient Greeks and things like that. He likes that stuff. And it's good to have one enemy, <laughs> right? In which to lump all this stuff we do that looks really like irrational, but we all will do it into. And I found that one of the key things to say is kind of that thing that I just said, which is for me, massive reason I gave for not doing things consciously or otherwise was I have all these weird thoughts and do all these weird things. If I was really a writer or really a business person or entrepreneur or whatever, I, I wouldn't do all these things. And when I read Stephen Pressfield and his stories and similarly Liz Gilbert and Big Magic and the things she says, like it's just a great example of these very successful people also face in Pressfield's language resistance also do weird stuff like procrastination, also have strange thoughts like perfectionism or imposter syndrome. Therefore, that's no longer a reason for me not to do. And so I would say if I was putting my, like I mentioned the maths before, like I had a maths degree. I remember as a volunteer at a charity I worked at laughing and being like, I'd forgotten you did maths, but you used the word subset when you just talked about it to talked about something to us. You know, if I was to think about the principles, yeah. Procrastination for me is contained in the idea of resistance from Stephen Pressfield. But to be honest, it doesn't really matter. As long as we acknowledge that pretty much everyone has ways of avoiding doing the things that feel hard, then we can talk about any of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm just trying to think in an office situation, right? If I'm at work now, there are things for sure that I'm avoiding. Yeah, right? and it used to be conversations having... a lot for me. Yeah, um, conversations. I was just going to say whether it's about to approach somebody to say, you know, could you do it this way or this isn't good enough or whatever, or maybe plucking up the courage to, well, again, it's going to be a conversation, but go and have, speak to the finance people and tell me what the hell do these numbers actually mean? And I don't think I ever really would have thought of that as resistance. And maybe I didn't have the word. Maybe I didn't know what resistance was. And one of the first times somebody talked to me about resistance, I remember them saying, keep a list of things that every time we ask you to, that you know, was a workshop, like every time we ask you to jump up and volunteer a song, if you don't want to do it, you will feel something in you that will stop you and keep a list of those things. And mm. so I suppose... A very long-winded way of saying, how do we recognize resistance in ourselves? I think that mostly people who are listening to this will be having, if they've never heard of that idea before, they'll be having this like sinking feeling right now. Or it's like, oh yeah, about something. And I get really interested in the somethings, right? My absolute favorite bit of the War of Art, which I think about all the time, is he says, I'm not going to get it quite right, but something like, there's a rule of thumb with resistance. The things to which we feel the most resistance are the most important things for our soul's evolution. I mean, I, it's like a big deal, this thing, right? And you can kind of see how that would be true. If I think of myself as a 20-something in an office, just never calling anyone because it's like you had this feeling about it, and always emailing and then getting stuck waiting for stuff because email is inefficient often and or not being willing to ask for something 
that I needed to do the work or that I needed for my life. What's important for that 20 something for him to grow into somebody who's more for his soul to evolve, for him to evolve, well, to work through that thing. And unfortunately, the best way to work through something is to practice it and do it. And I've seen that to be true many times. The, the 12 minute writing practice came from, in some ways, I tell it different ways, but in some ways it came from me having read that rule of thumb in the war of art and feeling it to be true and seeing this thing about which I had massive resistance and then finding a way with my coach to practice it. And it is undeniable that deciding in a coaching session to write five blogs on a train over the next two weeks and then keep turning that into a weekly habit has transformed who I am and what I do on more levels than I could count and probably know about. So I've now seen that rule of thumb to be true. So most people will know the feeling. And that's where it gets interesting. And I get interested in what's the thing that people have been thinking about for a long time. It's like the want to do, but not doing distinction that we were making before. What's the thing that you've been wanting to do for a long time, maybe months or years, but haven't been doing? Because that could be the most important thing for that person's soul's evolution, which is like, I think sometimes we need that kind of scale of language, really, the depth of language to, to kind of capture how important this stuff can be. And then... How do we help people bridge that gap between knowing it's the thing and doing the thing? And that's some of the stuff we've just been talking about, about habits, right? That's one of the most important things. For someone like me, where the resistance often comes in the form of overwhelm, like, how do I start a business? I don't know. It's too big. I'm just going to stop doing it. Well, much better to be doing the equivalent of 12 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is, work on it a week while you're panicking than doing nothing because you'll wake up in another five years and still have done nothing about the thing. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think we go day by day, week by week, and suddenly years have passed and we still haven't picked up the phone and had that conversation. And we have probably created a mess around it as well as we ingeniously <laughs> tightrope the situation and become like oh, yeah. gymnasts avoiding that one thing, which builds up fear the more we put something off. I should say the more I do it, the yeah. more difficult it becomes to face. Then it's yeah, it, like unsurmountable altogether. It is like Everest in the room. It's so important what you're saying, Susan. The way I would say it is, it's really very, very important with particularly these things, but also more broadly, to know that inaction is not neutral. So it's like, it feels like it is, it is not. You've given one example, which is like, yeah, these amazing tangled webs and stories that we develop about why. Because it's like, if, if I'm going to say that I'm not going to start writing, then I'm going to have to have a reason for that. And then the next week, I might develop a different excuse and reason. And then gradually, I've got this whole net of very rational sounding reasons to not do a thing, whatever that thing is, starting a business, writing a book, whatever the thing is. That's one reason. The other reason is the emotional cost. This is one of the things I really notice. If I don't do something, partly I may have a rational sounding excuse or I may have both of these things. I may also have this like just resentment and regret that I haven't started it. And each day breeds another day of resentment and regret. So if, but if instead you was to take small action, you not only get the rush of courage from having taken the action and the satisfaction that you've actually done something, but you have negated that building of resentment and regret. So it's a double benefit if you take the tiny action today. Wow. I love that. I'm writing a book and I'm going to say it like mm. that because I am. And it is about 
that kind of thing, the emotional cost of things. And so that's a one liner I'm going to be going back <laughs> listening to again for the book. But that's an aside because something else you said, oh, I listened to one of your 102 podcast episodes <laughs> during the week. And there was a question that you posed and I was doing the ironing at the time. It helped my mind wander. I was stuck with something and I needed to help my mind wander. And the question that you asked, I think, what was the one thing that if I did it now, it would negate the rest or take that fear out of it, the sting out of it. And I was stuck with something. And because I was listening to you speaking, I believe on your own, there's a conversation in my head going on with you. And the one thing that I needed to do popped straight in. And I wonder if I'd asked myself that same question, would I have been as truthful? And sometimes our stories, our webs are so interweaved that we cannot see the wood from the trees. And I think this is back to your point about needing help. And help can come in so many forms, just listening, reading, but our own stories are so intricate that breaking through that often on our own is very, very challenging, I believe. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. So there's a woman I really admire called Jennifer Garvey Berger, and she's got really accessible books, essentially about really deep research about adult developmental psychology and, and how our minds and perspectives grow. She's got these great books, which we talked about it on the Coach's Journey podcast. They're written on the, they're simple on the other side of complexity. So they're not like so simple, they're not holding the truth. She's been through the complexity and then she's found the simple on the other side. So they're really accessible books and unlocking leadership mind traps and unleashing your complexity genius are the names of the two books. Fully recommend them, give them to clients all the time. She says, like, the way she, I think, would talk about what you just said is, we have this worldview that develops with all these stories that make complete sense and the world makes sense. And when our worldview changes, it, it almost always gives us a better, more true way of seeing what's happening in the world. So it's good to develop your worldview and a sense of perspective that helps you deal with the complexity of the world. I just want to say that as an aside. The way that it happens is when something breaks your worldview, where you have a way of seeing the world and then something means that, that you can't ignore that that doesn't make sense. And I've had times in my life where that's happened a lot and I can see the stories I've had a lot because I've been through a breakup. Often it's a kind of involuntary thing. He's ill, somebody's dying, somebody's broken up with me. Sometimes it's a voluntary thing, like a learning experience or a retreat can kind of do this as well. And at that time, it feels a lot easier to get those things that really help us. The book comes in and it's like, oh, all this, is, I can see now that all this is true. And that if I applied it, I, I can change my life for the better and, and see things. But when I wouldn't have done that as easily at other times because things are more entrenched. And then like, it can come in all kinds of ways. I think the podcasts have a real place for that. Books can do it, but you can hear more the experience of a person when they're speaking. And look, I absolutely think that's one of the things that the coaching that I do, but also the mentoring that people receive, the great line managers, that's a thing that your people are often helping you see. I have a thing that I learned from Jennifer, which is just to say that it's not self-evident to me that that's true. You know, when someone's got this like incredible equivalence of this is like an absolute certainty, it's just a really gentle way of slowing somebody down enough to say, oh, that's interesting. And you got to be really careful with this stuff because it's, it's quite big if you change somebody's 
worldview sometimes. Or it's not an easy thing to go through. <laughs> it's like, it can be really uncomfortable. And in my work, I'm contracting to do that, right? People are paying me, so they're really counting on me, in fact, to do that. But for ourselves, we can kind of do it as well. I'm going to do another one. I think Susan has a really nice frame for conflict. I'm not sure I'm quite going to get it. But essentially, it requires three things. Let's see if I can remember. This is, I learned this from an Argentinian guy called Fred Kaufman. Scarcity. Oh, there's one other and then a dispute of property rights. So in a conflict, you don't know who gets to make the decision. If you know, there's no conflict between two people if one of them has the overwhelming agreed responsibility to decide what happens, right? Because the other person just says what they think and then the first person makes their decision. But the tensions we get in ourselves can be looked at with conflict theory as well. And it can be good to say, well, what are the constraints here? that are stopping me from making this decision or, or going. And usually in those, you can then look at them and go, well, are these all definitely true? And sometimes that opens things up. Totally. And it's back to this choice again, isn't it? And, and like you say, often there's a forcing function. So something happens that forces us to address our worldview, but we don't need to wait for that. We can choose to be somebody else and not somebody else because we're always going to be us but we can choose to say I want to be that person who writes a book in 12 minutes every week for a year or I want to be that person who runs a marathon or I want to be that person who isn't afraid to go and talk to my boss about a raise all of these yeah. things because we make the story so much more greater in our own heads so you'll often hear people say, you know, you get taught all the ways to kind of strategize. And I often think you're never going to come up with what happens in that room. Just go for it. You're never really mm -hmm. going to understand what that person is going to say back to you. You can have all the predictions you like. But actually, if you go into a conversation and like hope to carry out the conversation, get your point across, you'll be surprised where it can go. And that's yeah. way better. Yeah, way better. And it is like, again, in one of Garvey Berger's books, she really talks about that. It's a really natural thing because in simpler times, we actually could predict and control things a lot more. She thinks, and who am I to disagree with a Harvard professor and that kind of thing, former Harvard professor, she thinks that, you know, this was a thing that that developed as a, a competitive evolutionary advantage to to, to try and control what's happening except we live in a world that is much more complex than humans have existed in and we can't do that anymore and instead what you can do is focus on creating the conditions for good things to happen and enabling good things to happen and one of the things that is well look what are the things that will help you in that conversation and some of it is curiosity presence doing some prep so that you're there with you know, you you know some frameworks. Frameworks are good in the right way at the right time. And we could probably come up with another three or four. Maybe that's enough, actually. Experiment with that. See what you learn. You know? And I always think, look at the other person as a person, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Remember that you're sitting across from another person who gets up in the morning, brushes their teeth, goes to the toilet, has breakfast, the same as anyone else. It doesn't matter who they are. The reality is underneath the hood, we are all the same. And at one point, that person was probably afraid to have that conversation with someone else. So but they might still be. They yeah. might still actually be afraid right now having the conversation with you. Like you don't know, like they might not. And they might, but you see on the surface of people, we get tricked a bit by TV. There's a really nice bit in a Malcolm Gladwell book about friends and what a great show it is and how you could basically watch it without the sound on and know what's happening because they're such good actors and it's such a great ensemble. The problem with that is that's not how life works. 
no one looks how they're on the outside, how they're feeling, apart from maybe a toddler. Like I've got one now and it's wonderful to watch her and it's a total joy, right? And you can see with her that she, like we, can go pretty quickly from apoplectic rage with me for trying to change her nappy to having a fun time. And we can see that on the outside, but mostly in a business exec, they will have been trained over years to not show what's going on on the inside. So you've got no idea how scared they are, how stressed they are about their kids, whatever else it might be. And I think it's really important. Yeah, to connect on a human level. There's people listening here today and they are ready now to take some action. Okay, so we've convinced them, make a commitment, start small. And I like David White because he says, start close in, take the first step, not the second one or the third one, but the first one, the one you know you don't want to take. Uh, Is there a, a perfect condition when you're feeling like backing out again? Let you go ahead and actually take that step. Now, what would you say to somebody who builds up the courage that we've talked about and everything is 90%, well, let's say 80, let's take the 80-20, is 80% there. And then that feeling emerges again and they back away. So let's like slow it down to something we've talked about already, which is that essentially the momentum is the important thing. So it doesn't really matter how small the step is. And a really important thing, I learned about it in a book called The Burnout Fix by Jacinta Jimenez. It's a great book in lots of ways, but one of the things that really stayed with me was the research she was quoting, they call it self-efficacy. Essentially, she means confidence there, I think. And if you want coaching, some of the key things you get from it is helping people build their self-efficacy, build their confidence in all kinds of ways. One of the things she talks about in that book is be really careful with the goals you set that they are goals that will build self-efficacy. And what that means is, like, it, I think, my memory is, might be wrong, it might be neutral or the same, but I think it's worse for self-efficacy to go for a goal that's too big and fail than it is to, certainly to go for a goal that's too small and succeed, but, but maybe to go for nothing. Like, it's actually a maybe negative effect. So it's really important to be careful with the commitments we make and the goals we set if it's about something really important to us and if there's a fragility or a deep fear there and to go for this the absolute smallest possible thing when i think about the person i wanted to be you talked about it's a really nice way of thinking about it and wasn't actually somebody who'd written a book in 12 minutes writing was essentially incidental to that practice although we talked for another hour about why it wasn't quite but what was happening there what i wanted to be was somebody who could share the things they'd made with people without it being this horrible agonizing process That's the person I set out to be and have absolutely become through that practice. But what I did to get there was not write the most scary article that I could think of and post it. It was to write a reasonably safe article about something within a container which kept me safe. And the container was posted on LinkedIn because no one read LinkedIn. And certainly none of the people I was really afraid what they thought of me read it. It was to write at the bottom. I wrote this article on a train, proofread it once and posted it. So whatever anyone said to me, all my fears, like this is this is terrible writing, you're wrong about this, who are you to write this thing? All that stuff I was afraid people would say, really, I could then go, well, look, I wrote it on a train, so you know, you can't what are you on about. And that was really important. And over time I built that, but it, but it is the small as possible. And then it's just to remember that annoying and frustrating and dispiriting as this is, confidence comes on the other side of action. It's a result of action. And so waiting for that is not going to help you. 
you'll never get there. It'll never be ready. It'll never be perfect. You said, is there a perfect condition? It's really important to know there is not. There never will be. There will be no perfect conditions. That is imaginary. There's no but the beauty thing. of confidence... Yeah, exactly. The beauty of confidence coming on the other side is that what comes on this side is, in my view, one of the absolute most admirable qualities that humans can ever personify, which is courage, which is acting in the face of fear. There's almost nothing as inspiring as you see it in athletes. It's why X Factor was a huge hit, right? Because there were these acts of courage that you could watch. I mean, some of it was the mocking people, but the acts of courage, that was the thing that brought tears to people's eyes about those talent shows. Um, and, and so you get to do that with something you're afraid of. In fact, to do that, you have to be, afraid, and then you get to do it. And the more afraid you are, the more evolution of your soul is is available to you. And, and the more so, meaningful it is to you. Absolutely, absolutely. And the more you'll look back on it and feel proud. Yeah, and what you feel is because it means something to you. I always believe that that is what's driving it. And We've completely run out of time and didn't get through <laughs> half of the things that we could have talked about, I'm sure. But that doesn't mean anything because you can always come back again. <laughs> yeah, well, also, I've had to get really used to it, Susan. That's the 12-minute practice. One of my mentors, Robert Holden, he's written some great books, but he said, what I love about the 12-minute practices, I always feel with my books like I have to approach it from all the angles. You know, he's written a book about, great book about love. I have to approach it from all the angles under the sun. 12 minutes, here's an idea. Here's what I can think about it in 12 minutes. There you go. And it's a practice, really, also in knowing that you can't say everything in 12 minutes. And so, yeah, we haven't said everything, but we've said some things. And it's felt to me like a really valuable, rich conversation. I'm very, very grateful and glad to have had it. And I hope that people who've listened have, have taken some things that they can use. Absolutely. And you have published four books in the last 15 months, I guess, maybe less yeah. even. And you've been on over 100 episodes. I'm not going to leave a link to the 100 episodes, but I am going to leave a link to the blog that outlines them. And mm. maybe just quickly, if you don't mind, the four books. And also, where can people find you, Robbie? Yeah, so I'm at RobbieSwale.com. You just Google me and I'm on all the, all the social media. But because of that blog, uh, the place that I'm re really on, the other ones I'm kind of on. So people can find me there. The books are on Amazon and other places depending on where the distributors send them. If you're in the UK, you can get them on Blackwells or Waterstones. If you're in the US, you can get them on Barnes & Noble, those kinds of places. If you can't find them, like let me know because I'm interested in, in that and where they are and I'm not really keeping track of it and I can see if we can find a way to get them there. So in the first three years of the 12-minute blog, I'd written 80,000 words 12 minutes at a time. So that's what small repeated action can get you. Um, and th those 80,000 words, give or take, plus a few surrounding bits, are now four books about the creative process because it turned out I hadn't just written 80,000 words about anything I'd written about the thing that I was wrestling with and my clients were wrestling with, which is how do you do these things that you really want to do but aren't doing? And so there's one part for each part of the creative process, one book. So if, if starting is your trouble, you can read the start book. If you're worried that you're going to give up partway through, read the keep going book. You can read them all, of course. That's my favorite people, I should say, read all of them. And if, if it's sharing the work, that final bit, that's the fourth book. It's like the shortest, but the most concentrated. It's like just a series of tricks that I've used to get over my fear and get things out there and mind tricks that I play on myself. And the third book in the series, but really in some ways the fourth, because of what we just said about perfect conditions is about creating the conditions to do your best work, to do great work. And so, yeah, but I would, I would strongly recommend that people just buy all of them. Yeah. Of course you would. <laughs> and hopefully in this episode, we, you've given away most of the secrets anyway. Yeah. No, but, but actually but, yeah, I do but, think... But, We've gone through the journey of, of pretty much all of them. But yes, of course, 
go and, and, and read them, buy <laughs> but, them. But, but actually, Susan, it's probably important to say I'm really joking about that. And, and the where the podcast challenge came from, just to kind of complete that loop, because we're talking about it now, is I realized that the most meaningful success for me from those books would be if people were writing to me or speaking to me saying, I've been wanting to do this thing for a long time. And I came across your work and I've finally done it. And I realized people don't have to read the books to do that. But in fact, if I, and this has happened already for me in different places, if I tell the story of these things, if I talk about these ideas, then that will sometimes happen. And then I thought, well, how can I do that? And then that, that was in some ways the genesis of a hundred podcasts in 2022 and hundred and whatever I said, four or five, that this makes it. Fantastic. So don't buy I'm the books, sure just I've start your got... thing. That's the yeah. thing. Yeah, That's the thing, isn't it? But maybe reading a book is one of the things you've been putting off. So start with Robbie's. Yeah. Or... <laughs> that's good. Or maybe it's resistance. And so you should just do your thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think reading is a form of procrastination for me. Sometimes it's for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. But still, you always learn. And that's important too. Robbie, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And all the best. Oh, it's a total pleasure. Total pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode. If something rang through for you, be sure to let me know. Or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too. And if you enjoy helping others, I'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.